Before we get started, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. One of the best parts about having Keeley Companies as our sponsor and partner is that they are so easy to celebrate. They're shining a much-deserved light right now on the talented women whose innovation and dedication has allowed Keeley Companies to continue to achieve phenomenal growth and success. Right now, they're celebrating Courtney V. She is a field safety coordinator with Keeley Companies and has been in the construction industry for a little bit more than five years. She'll be the first to tell you that joining a male-dominated industry as a young woman was at first intimidating, yet as she cultivated her career, she became a confident, trusted, and respected team member. When asked what advice she might give other young women starting out in this industry, she said, the three things you need to focus on are communication, confidence, and building relationships. Be able to communicate and encourage people to communicate even when you're not there. The whole goal is to build relationships and not to be afraid to speak your mind. Well, thank you, Courtney, for the awesome reminder. And thank you, Keeley Companies, for bringing forward an awesome leader. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. On occasion, we bring to you a guest on the Live Inspired Podcast who are inspiring. Occasionally, we bring you guests who have something remarkable to share about their life. Occasionally, we bring you guests whose life was dramatically influenced by someone else's generosity. And occasionally, we bring you individuals who are historically important. And then occasionally, we bring you guests who have all of those wrapped up in one remarkable, radically inspirational life story. And that is what we are going to be celebrating today. I first introduced you to today's guest back in July of 2018. It was shortly after my kids and I watched a family movie together called Apollo 13. And near the end, one of my little ones said, hey, daddy. Whatever happened to him? Whatever happened, no, not to Tom Hanks, people, to Commander Jim Lavelle. So we did a little bit of legwork, we did a little bit of research, and we tracked down Commander Jim Lavelle of Apollo 13. Jim Lavelle is one of only three men to travel to the moon twice. He, Commander Jim Lavelle, accrued more than 715 hours in space. He has seen more than 260 sunrises from space. He possesses the record for farthest distance traveled by a human being ever from Earth. Oh, and my friends, I'm, I'm not done. I'm not done. There's more. He is the recipient of the Congressional Space Medal of Honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He was Time Magazine Man of the Year, along with two of his Apollo 8 crewmates. And he has received countless other accolades for his accomplishments. But in this conversation, rather than spending the majority of the time bragging about the things that he has been able to accomplish, Jim spends the majority of his time humbly recounting how he was able to do it and ultimately what it means for you. My friends, today we all face our own unique challenges. Hearing how Jim Lavelle stayed mentally strong when a routine procedure 
goes terribly wrong will ignite and inspire you to remain mentally strong as a leader, as a team player, and as a dreamer in your life. You're gonna be inspired today by a gentleman who grew up without a father, who grew up in a very impoverished time during the Great Depression, and who had a mighty dream to reach for the stars. He's gonna elevate and encourage you to do the exact same in your life. So join me right now in welcoming a great hero of mine, Apollo 13 spacecraft commander and my friend, Commander Jim Lavelle, back to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Well, John, that was quite an introduction, and I appreciate that being on your show. Well, man, it's an honor to have you. And Jim, you, you had your smoothest space trip on Apollo 8. You had your rockiest, roughest, and most infamous now on Apollo 13. Do, do you remember the moment when it went from being another uh, typical trip to the moon to being completely different? Well, yes, when you look back at it now, Apollo 13 was actually a uh, plague that was put upon it with bad omens and bad luck. Mm. It, it was It was bad from the beginning. Apollo 13, years before it was to fly, during its construction, had a, a broken liquid oxygen tank built on it. The tank was dropped at the factory floor prior to its delivery to NASA. Uh, they picked it up, checked it thoroughly, but they failed to check the tubing in the tank, whose sole purpose was to remove liquid oxygen during a pre-flight test. It was damaged, which they didn't know about, and uh, so the tank was uh, originally scheduled for Apollo 10, and since it was delayed, went to Apollo 13, and actually, uh, two weeks uh, uh, before the flight to go, uh, to go, we did the last test on the spacecraft, which uh, checked everything on the spacecraft, basically, during the countdown. The things would go on at the proper time, the internal power would come up, the guidance system would come online. Uh, oxygen will start flowing uh, to the tank to pressurize the spacecraft and things like that. Uh, that test was completely okay. It passed everything. It was all set to go. After the test was over, ground crew went in to secure the spacecraft. And of course, one of their jobs was to remove the liquid oxygen. And when they tried on the damaged tank, which they didn't know was damaged, mm -hmm. they couldn't remove it. But they had thought... That tank uh, was secured to put 65-volt ground power to sort of uh, boil the oxygen out because back in 1965, NASA had requested the manufacturer to replace the 28-volt thermostats, which the spacecraft flew with a 28-volt system, to replace it with 65-volt thermostats. When the tank wouldn't empty in the normal manner, and they realized that there were 60-volt thermostats to protect the tank. They turned on the power, but <laughs> there were not 65-volt thermostats. Mm -hmm. Manufacturer failed to put them on. NASA failed to follow up on their request. The 65-volt power soon turned up the heat and liquid oxygen tank. And remember, it, it, mm. it boiled off all the oxygen, but it also uh, damaged completely the wiring and the heater system and everything like that, exposed the wires, essentially, that made it uh, viable as a potential problem for a fire. But that incident was not recorded. It was not expected. They, uh, the accident was completely unobserved, and they thought everything was fine. And then a day before the flight, 
that tank was again filled up with liquid oxygen, and of course, uh, it was a bomb ready to go off. Well, it goes off when you are 100,000 miles or so away from the Earth. When did you realize, wow, this is... Uh, this is serious, and you you got to not only be on, but it's time to start praying and saying goodbye to your wife and your heart, and and uh, you really had some great angst on what was going to take place next on that on that launch. Well, of course, the explosion occurred on April 13th. Like I said, it was uh, plagued with bad omens. We had just finished a TV program, uh, so right now it became one of uh, of uh, the third landing on the moon to one of uh, survival. And uh, and when we when I finally uh, started to look at things in the command module and our warning lights started to come on, we had lost, uh, first of all, two out of three of our fuel cells that produced electricity for us. And uh, that meant that automatically the landing was off, although the one fuel cell still going was okay. It had provided enough electrical power to get, get us just around the moon and back again. A further examination of the instrument panel, I saw that on the quantity gauges of the two liquid oxygen tanks that one of the gauges read absolute zero, mm. and then I saw the other gauge, the needle start to cool down very slowly, and then confirmed that when I looked out the window, I saw gas escaping from the rim of my spacecraft. I knew that not only were we not going to land on the moon, but this if we get back, we're going to be very, very lucky because that gas escaping meant that uh, we lose all of our oxygen uh, to breathe. And when we did that, of course, also we used oxygen to produce electricity in the fuel cell. We lose the fuel cell. That meant we lose all our electrical power. And since we use electrical power to control and gimbal our rocket engine, we lose the entire propulsion system. We were in serious, serious trouble. At the time of the explosion, we're some 200,000 miles from Earth, we're going in the wrong direction, and we are 90 hours from Earth because knowing that we had to go around the moon to get back home again, and it was going to take 90 hours to do it. But uh, the spacecraft had inside it uh, an oxygen tank and a battery that was already used for the final plunge through the Earth's atmosphere, which would be just in minutes, not in hours. And so uh, it appeared uh, that it would be pretty drastic, and which led us to the conclusion that the only way we could possibly get home was to use that lunar module. Yes. The job was not to go home, but land on the moon for only a two-day voyage. You know, we, we could spend hours talking through the difficulties you faced and the ways that you rose above it. And I would encourage the folks to check out the book that you wrote. It's called Apollo 13. It is phenomenal. And there's, of course, a movie by Ron Howard that is also remarkably well done. I'm curious, though, when you are three men, 200,000 miles away from home, with little chance of successfully returning there, how do you keep a right mind, not only internally, but also how do you keep it as a team? How how did you keep from infighting and uh, finger pointing and, and losing your cool? Well, when the explosion first occurred, we didn't know really exactly what our danger was, although we found out quite quickly. And then we had no solutions at all as to what to do, except the fact that we knew we were going to lose oxygen pretty soon. But I have to tell you, in any kind of a situation like this, uh, you have to keep your cool. You have to have a positive attitude. If I curled up in a, a 
in a position waiting for an emergency to happen, you know, I would still be there waiting for that emergency to happen. Mm. And so what I did was the, the three of us got together and said, okay, what's good, what's bad? Fortunately, we had the communications with the ground, and the ground also looked at everything, what we could do. We looked at the condition of the lunar module. Uh, it had plenty of oxygen so far. You know, we were supposed to land and stay on the moon for a while. And uh, we, we had a propulsion system that was going to be used to land on the moon, but now we'd have to use it to land somehow to come back home again. And one of the big criteria that we had to think about was the fact that we were on a course now that that would not, uh, it was a long and lengthy orbit, and the return of that orbit back to Earth was not in a position to make a safe landing back on the Earth, but the closest point of approach to the Earth would be about 40,000 miles out, which would mean that we'd end up in a, over a period of time in a long elliptical orbit, 240,000 miles to the apogee, back to the Earth at 40,000 miles. So we had to get on back on our orbit that would successfully make us go through the atmosphere and make a landing. And all these things we had to do. So fortunately, between the ground and the flight crew, we one by one, we determined what was what was necessary and what we had to do to overcome it. If did you turn toward prayer or was it, no, man, we worked like dogs. We planned it all out. We lean into our math. We lean into the guys down there in Houston and, and uh, Florida and around us, the smartest minds around them. I'm curious when the odds are that long, literally you're on the far side of the moon again. Uh, wh- wh- how do you respond to it, Jim? Well, we, we didn't respond to prayer. I mean, that was just wasting time at that time. <laughs> We had to step back and start thinking what we had on board uh, to overcome. Uh, and here's some of the things we had. We had to figure out how to get back on the proper course to get back home again. We had to realize what we had to save because we had electrical things going, what we had to turn off and what we had to you know, use uh, manually. I mean, we couldn't use the computer because it was using too much fuel. We couldn't use the control system automatically because it was using, I mean, too much electrical power. Uh, we had to figure out what we had to save. Uh, we had to look at the fact that uh, we are now three men uh, in a lunar module because the de- command module was dead, which included the environmental control system. And every time that the three of us took a exhale of breath, that was carbon dioxide. The carbon dioxide in the lunar module was designed to only support, I mean, to remove the carbon dioxide with uh, the lithium hydroxide canisters were only designed enough of them to support two men for two days, and we were three men for four days. And uh, so, you know, we are slowly being poisoned by our own exhalation if there was some way that we could get, get rid of the carbon dioxide. And that meant looking back at the dead command module and its environmental system and the fact that it had lithium hydroxide canisters in that system, unfortunately, they were square, and the lunar module had round or oblong canisters, which meant how do we jury rig a square canister to a, a lunar module system, and that had to all be worked out. And uh, those are the things that we had to look at uh, from the time the explosion occurred. 
Yeah, I, we don't want to give away the ending, but it's there's a high likelihood that somehow you figure these things out that with your team and with your wit, you make it back down. I'm curious, do you remember what it felt like to splash down safely? Uh, yes, that's why, that's why one by one we had to come back. The last really uh, uh, program or the problem we had, uh, crisis I might say, that we had no control over. The pyrotechnics that uh, that put out the three parachutes, uh, essentially, uh, that would make our landing successful, uh, were had been cold soaked for four days because normally they'd stay warm with the electrical power we had, but we had to turn all that off. So uh, we had a hope upon hope that being so cold that they would still fire, which they did, which we landed uh, in the Pacific. Uh, and, uh, very, you know, thankfully we all looked at each other, uh, that we made it. And it was a joint effort, as a matter of fact, really one to which I, uh, to this day, I admire the cooperation and the coordination of teams working together. Jim, I have four children and all of us are fascinated in looking up, whether the, the sun is out or the stars are shining. We're just we're overwhelmed by our place in the universe. So I, I asked all of my kids to ask you one question. So I'd like to go through these four questions. One of my children wanted to know what the best part of going into space was for you. Well, the best part for me, because my career had been aviation and then my love had been looking at rockets, uh, is the fact that uh, I was actually doing it. Mm. I you know, on the very first flight on Gemini 7, I said to myself before the before the, we took off, here I am. Uh, I, what Exactly what I wanted to do all this time. I went through aviation and now rocket technology, and here I am going into space. How did I get here? Mm. Why? Why? You know, I, I was, uh, you know, I, I didn't have a father. We had no money. Uh, how did all these things happen? It's an amazing set of circumstances that led you to getting there. And, and uh, we just appreciate you spending some of this time with us talking about how you, part of the way you got there. And the second question we have for you, Jim, is do you ever get mad? Uh, this is from my son, Patrick, by the way. Did you ever get mad at the guys when you are stuck on a spacecraft with them day after day after day? So he, I think he's looking around the house. He gets mad at his brothers all the time. He wants to know, do you get mad at those other astronauts when you are stuck on this small vehicle day after day? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, because we all vied for these flights that even though you didn't like the guy you were sitting next to, you sort of, you know, t took it with a grain of salt and went ahead and did everything. And uh, No, we never did because uh, we realized that there was no sense getting mad. I mean, he, you depended on him. He depended on you. And uh, so by uh, well, the time he climbed into the spacecraft, you had to be very cordial with each other. Mm. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's an old joke going by that that after Gemini 7, now the, when we're on the deck of the aircraft carrier, we announced that uh, we our engagement. <laughs> <laughs> so this third one is from Henry, who uh, he wants to know, what do you do when you get scared up there? Well, yeah, to tell you the truth, you know, there's always a certain amount of, uh, I don't know, being scared or being, uh, you know, wondering what's going to happen. So you always just suck it in, and uh, uh, and you all hope that everything works out the way you had planned, uh, even though that you know things sometimes go awry. 
but you hope that it's not, you know, it's, it's not me, it's uh, the next flight, or the, or maybe it was the one past that. Mm. Jim, this question is from my six-year-old Grace. She wants to know if you could do it today, would you go back? So if you could go back up to the heavens today with one of the spaceship programs, would you do it? Would you say yes? Well, you have to realize your time to guy is 90 years old. And uh, actually, I would mind if someone asked me to go back on a regular flight. I mean, like a, another Apollo. Yes. Maybe a lot like Apollo 8 rather than Apollo uh, landing flight. Yeah, I, I think I'd take a chance. Or better <laughs> still, if the shuttle was still going, would you like to go back on the shuttle, which would be an Earth orbital type thing? I would like that because they'd give me time to think. I think those shuttle people have had time on the International Space Station to, uh, you know, to just, uh, you know, think about the Earth and look back on it. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't think that will ever come to pass. Well, uh, with with your luck, who knows? I, I look forward to you uh, pushing a flag deep into the moon's surface one of these days. With nine decades of uh, experience and an incredible resume and an incredible journey that you've been on, is there one moment in time that you've, you kind of look back on as the the high watermark, some some pinnacle moment in your career or pinnacle moment in your life? Well, I think the high mark on my four flights, and uh, every one was unique. And uh, but the high was looking back at the Earth when I mentioned it, and I saw the Earth as we really were. I saw, you know, I, I suddenly realized our position in the universe mm. and uh, how fortunate we are. That, that we have the ability to have uh, eyes and ears and nose and enjoy the life and see things around us. Captain Jim Lovell, I want to thank you for your adventurous spirit, for your wisdom, for your courage, for your life, and for encouraging the rest of us to be adventurous in our own lives. Thank you very much. Well, my friends, the conversation you just heard with Commander Jim Lovell fulfilled a dream of mine. I love Commander Jim Lavelle. I love Jim. I love his heart. I love the fact that this man refused to allow any adversity to get in his way, that he has achieved profound things in his life, including a seven-decade-long marriage to his best friend, his wife, Marilyn. It's an incredible story in and of itself. His adventurous spirit and courage is most certainly contagious, and his insightful wisdom is inspiring. If you'd like to listen to the entire conversation with Commander Jim Lavelle, I'd encourage you to right now to cruise on over and learn more by checking out episode 90. I'm going to have a link to episode 90 in the show notes, or you can go to johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast or anywhere that you subscribe to your podcast. And I'm sure by now you are subscribing and you are rating the Live Inspired podcast, but episode 90 is where you can listen to the entire full-length interview with Commander Jim Lavelle. You'll hear about how he grew up in poverty. You'll hear about what it was like to grow up during the Depression. You'll hear about a chance encounter with his future wife, Marilyn. You'll hear about some of the more, more uh, beautiful stories around becoming an astronaut in the first place. And you'll also hear his answers to, to the live inspired seven it's worth checking out you're gonna love it episode 90 or visit me at john o'leary inspires.com forward slash podcast jim lavelle is a reminder that you too can overcome challenges that are astronomical and come out as a stronger leader 
a dependable team player, and a relentless dreamer in your life. So my friends, I'm going to encourage you today for this time and until the next time that my name, yes indeed, it is John O'Leary. Today is your day. Reach for the stars, baby, and live inspired.